Welcome to CPF Firewire, a podcast from California professional firefighters where we discuss a wide range of issues affecting firefighters, our unions, our families, and the communities we serve. Hello, everyone. I'm Brian Rice, and I'm the president of the California Professional Firefighters. Welcome to another edition of the CPF Firewire. We all know about the life and death risks that firefighters face on the job, but every day, little by little, the job, it takes a toll in exposure to substances and conditions that will make you sick. I believe that for a lot of us, it's not a question of if we'll get cancer. It's, it's really a question of when. And if you want proof, look at the California Memorial's wall. Since 2002, more than two-thirds of the names on that wall have died of job-related cancers. If we get sick because of the job we do, we count on workers' comp to provide care for, to provide for our care and to provide for our families. But a lot of times, firefighters wind up fighting for their workers' compensation protection, even as they're fighting for their own lives. The bottom line is that to protect, your, protect yourself and to protect your family, you need to document your exposures on the job. And for more than three decades, 30 years, CPF's personal exposure reporting system has given firefighters an easy, secure, and effective way to keep track of those exposures. Today on the Firewire, we're going to talk with two men who have literally uh, faced death from job-related illnesses. They also know how reporting exposures through PER can make a difference in that fight. And I'll just say this, that if you're a firefighter listening to this and you know of firefighters that have not listened in on a podcast, this is the one to listen to. And joining me this morning is Mike Lacey. He's a fire captain with uh, Moraga Orinda Fire Department and a member of Contra Costa County Firefighters Local 1230. Michael, welcome. Thank you for having me. And also with me is Alex Mengel. And Alex is a firefighter with the Alameda County Fire Department and a member of Alameda County Firefighters Local 55. Alex, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And I'm just, you know, guys, we're just going to have a conversation. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna start off. Um, Alex, just tell me, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, how you got into the fire service, and uh, maybe just a short little history on how you learned you were sick and why, and then we'll kind of, we'll, we'll go into that when we get um, Mike on that track too. So I uh, got into the fire service, uh, went into Butte Fire Academy in uh, 1998. I uh, actually got involved in the fire service because uh, our political director currently, uh, Brian Santoni, his dad was my Cub Scout leader. <laughs> and was actually the only one that I knew in the fire service. So I went and visited him at a fire station just to say hi. What what department did Brian's uh, dad work at? San Leandro. San Leandro, at the time. okay. Yeah, so uh, they get a call. I jump on the engine. I still remember exactly where the call was. And I came back and said, how do I do this? And they said, go to either Chabot, Butte, or Columbia. I got into Butte and... There was. That's what kicked That's it off. Exactly. And how old were you when you started? 18 when I went into the fire academy, and I got hired at 21 and a half for South San Francisco. Uh, but I had two seasons with CAL FIRE prior to that. Kind of just the same thing, Mike. How did you start? 
in uh, how long have you been in uh, been in the service? So I started the fire service in 1997, but I was very similar to a lot of the other guys. I got into the fire service by a friend of mine's dad. Uh, got to go to the fire station in Santa Clara and uh, got to go visit. Thought it was the coolest thing ever, and that was in like sixth grade. Um, and kind of set my set my sights from there. '97 uh, became a reserve with the city of Santa Clara, um, and then in 2006 got hired with Moraga Rinda, and have been there since. I kind of had a, a similar path. I started as a reserve here in a small department called Arden. Might even be before you guys were born. 82. Okay. No, wait, you guys are in your forties. I'm good. I'm safe. Okay. Hey, <laughs> um, kind of turning a little bit more serious. When you came on the job, like a lot of us, did you think that one day that you had a possibility that you could get a life-threatening illness or disease from this job? Did that ever cross your mind? Not directly, no. I knew that there was a possibility. I had a friend of mine pass away for a, who was a firefighter, but it was, it was an outside thought. And at the time, it was more something that I thought was maybe isolated to a, a single event as opposed to broad stroke, we have the potential. Let's, let's kind of dive in from there. Michael, um, you had a pretty close call. And, and do you mind um, telling us about it? Yeah. Um, 2013, I was uh, diagnosed with meningitis. Um, started out with just feeling a headache. I was on duty and uh, coming home from a call and looked at my partner and said, hey, man, I feel like, I, like I'm getting a migraine. Never had a migraine in my life, but figured, man, this is pretty bad. Must be that. Um, of course, I finished my shift and uh, went home and then said, wow, I'm, I'm getting worse. And got to the point where I actually told myself, wow, you, you have meningitis. You really thought you, that, that crossed your 100%. mind? 100%. Really? I had, it wasn't like a textbook where very subtle, I had spine pain. I was having trouble seeing. I was having visual disturbances. I was having a headache that I wouldn't wish on anybody. I was thrown up and I got to the point where I was like, I, I might die here. So from onset of symptoms till when you found yourself at the emergency room, how, how long did that take? 48 hours. Pretty fast. Pretty fast. Alex, you had a little bit of a different journey um, with your diagnosis. Tell me about it. Uh, very different. Um, actually didn't have any symptoms. Uh, went in for a routine MRI where they found um, a brain tumor in my frontal lobe. And you were, you were in for a checkup and having some other things looked at and some chemi um, chemistry, chemical work done. Um just to see. And so they, they kind of came on that. Unrelated. Unrelated. No symptoms. And as you know, discussed the first symptom of a brain tumor is a seizure. Mm -hmm. So luckily didn't have any, um, looking back, you know, my, one of my eyes was red for some reason, but talking to the, my neurosurgeon and my neuro-oncologist, they think that that might've been unrelated as well. So, and did they cell type your cancer? I, so it was a astrocytoma. 
Yeah, it was grade two astrocytoma. And, uh, I mean, but they did the biopsy. And and tell me where that leads. I mean, you're cancer free today. Correct. They got it early, but had that early recognition not taken place, what was kind of the future? Uh, it definitely could have been more aggressive, maybe a grade three uh, down the road if symptoms would have actually come about. Um, because if you have symptoms with brain cancer, that usually cuts your survival rate dramatically. So the fact that I did not have symptoms, that they found it on a routine MRI with no symptoms leading to that, basically is why I'm sitting here. It really put today. you in a position Absolutely. to recover. And you're cancer-free today. Yes. And this will sound dumb, but Alex is, um, or Mike is meningitis-free. That I am. <laughs> we all know that. Um, <laughs> Kind of, what was, um, Mike, what was your recovery when you got a diagnosis? I mean, we had talked earlier and you said, no, I was probably within 72 hours or less from death. And, and kind of walk us through a little bit of um, the diagnosis, the treatment, the hospitalization, and when did you start to get better? So diagnosis and treatment, was within 48 hours. I was admitted into the ICU for a week. Um, I was out of work for two months and total time from onset of symptoms till I was symptom free and hundred percent good to go was about seven months, seven months. And so you were off duty for all of that time or just I was two off months? duty for two months, just the two months. And initially, um, were you on sick leave? I burnt all of my sick leave and my vacation. Okay. And we'll go back to the pursuit on the comp end of that. And then, um, Alex, how about you? How did, how did it kind of where I want to get to is, is at what point did you start to go? My job had a lot to do with this or everything to do with it. So you, you received your treatment. What was that like from diet, you know, from your MRI, this is what's happening to, um, being told, you're cancer free. What what did you experience treatment wise and how long were you off? So I uh, had my MRI mid-May of 2016, had uh, surgery to remove the tumor on uh, the 1st of June, was off for eight weeks um, on sick leave because I didn't put in until the biopsy came back that it was cancer, even though the neurosurgeon looked at me at the consult. Um, he said, 100% it's cancer. But what grade, all that kind of stuff, we didn't know until the biopsy came back. Uh, so I was off for eight weeks, came back to full duty. Um, no and, deficits or you were clear and everything no, was so good? No, I, so I still have, I'll have a gray line in my vision and ringing in my ears. And every once in a while, I'll get like a kind of a sharp poker in, you know, my temple area. But above ground, it's a good day. Yeah. Um, and then stayed on duty for another two and a half months, went back off for um, 42, dose, uh, 42 sessions of radiation with low-dose chemo, then had a month off, and then did 12 cycles of high-dose chemo. And so that took me all the way until 2018. I was off until January 6th, I think, of 2018. Uh, went into the uh, academy, the fire academy, as a cadre, and uh, instead of going back online, so worked, did the entire academy with them, um, and ever since then been 
doing the, the cancer prevention section in the academy. So I'm going to get back to you in a second, Mike. How, at, at what point did you um, realize that this isn't a sick leave, this is an on-the-job um, issue, and when did you begin to pursue um, workers' comp? So as soon as the, the neurosurgeon looked at me and said it's cancer, 100%, I didn't have a family history of cancer, of brain cancer. So to me, at that point, I knew. And also, fortunately, my employer knew as well. So they actually fronted all of my sick leave. I think by the time workers' comp actually kicked in, I was negative 1,500 hours in sick leave. So they knew it was work-related. They did not. The, the department was amazing with that. Um, it was workers' comp that was kind of dragging their feet. They denied it initially. I had to see a, a qualified medical examiner. And that's where the, the personal exposure reports came in, is handing him all those reports and him looking at it and saying, I have to connect it by law. If you don't have a family history, it's law that I have to connect it. So, so with that, as soon as, as soon as I was told it was cancer, I was thinking that it was job related hundred percent. Mike, and how about with you? I mean, meningitis is, is, I mean, it's just as deadly, but a lot, it's not one that we think about. And you and I were talking, I was talking about a recent um, meningitis death here in Sacramento. And, and ha- kind of what was that thought process for you? I've got the diagnosis. Um, how, did you, how did you pursue whether it was sick leave or, you know what, this is job related? You know, at first I took it as just, I need to get better. My brain wasn't right. I was, I was a little foggy. And so that initial time, really looking into it and pursuing it just wasn't there. The pursuit didn't happen for probably seven months. We started to hear back, hey, you might want to look into this. Came to our fire chief, said, hey, here's what CPF has to say. Here's what our presumptive list is. And this one specifically, this is, is meningitis. Um, once that came about and we saw the opportunity for us collectively as an organization, but also as a local to learn from this, um, things went very smoothly. Uh, but it took coming to them with this information um, and letting everybody know, really. It's good that the recognition was there on the presumptive. There, All of our presumptives are rebuttable. And it sounds like the department was receptive, but when you went back and looked at your work history and your call, you know, the calls you went on impossible exposures, could you come up with anything? No, there was, there was no way to pinpoint it. There was no calls that we had run that had come back. Um, and mine was initially, even, even when I brought this forward, my case was denied because there was no place to pinpoint exactly where especially as a transporting agency, the opportunity for us to have been exposed was infinite. My infectious disease doctor um, gave a very scary point saying your host could have been someone who thought they had the flu. People can have a misdiagnosed or an undiagnosed meningitis and and be completely unaware and not even know it was yours. Um, I know some. I know I'll get dangerous now. There's viral. There's bacterial. Yep. Was yours contagious? 
Uh, mine was contagious. I did have viral. Okay. Um, and I mean, being in isolation is a, is a special place while you're sitting in a hospital. Yeah. Um, thinking about your mortality. Just, I'm a young and, guy. And looking out a window when you're 33 years old with a, you know, my daughter at the time was seven years old going, Ugh. wow, this is, this is really actually happening right now. And then I want to go back to um, Alex, to you, because you talked about your exposure reporting and how that was a game changer. I had always kept uh, exposure reports ever since I was with South San Francisco. Um, And then being diagnosed, I actually went back during those, the two months that I was on and looked at every pot on the stove that we went on, every plastics burning in, you know, school bathrooms, all, all those little fires that didn't seem like a big fire at the time. I actually went and almost doubled my exposure reporting numbers uh, to bring to the, the qualified medical examiner doctor to prove my case. So workers comp had already denied it. So at that point, I knew that the exposure report and that QME doctor was my only hope at that point. And I'm going to assume both of you went through this process with a workers' comp attorney. Or I did, did you, not. You did not. Yes. You did. Yes. Interesting. Um, I wouldn't recommend, I mean, me per, being a union president here in Sacramento, that was one of the things that I always told our members. If you've got an illness, if you've got anything that is a significant comp issue, you need to engage a workers' comp attorney. There's no way that I would follow the path that I took. What was that even like? It was terrifying. Um, I, I felt, I felt alone. We knew the assumed of, yeah, cancer. Okay, cool. Right. Well, not knowing that there's a list of several other finding this out way after the fact and then pursuing it was terrifying. One of the things that I think is huge about PER is it empowers the employee. Mm -hmm. It, it gives you something to hold on to that's tangible when you're sitting there alone. I want to go back to Alex on this. And and I think you can drive the point home on how we kind of learned after the fact. And I'll sit here tell, telling you guys as a 30-year firefighter, and I told you before, I think I filled out two um, exposure reports. And, and, and we, in my day, we didn't have the app. It was the Red Absolutely. Book. And I never, I didn't do it. You, Alex, you did do it. And, and, and I know that that um, probably talk to us about the experience you had and the, and the importance that you see from personal experience. Well, with, with the exposures, again, when I was with Cal Fire, it, it was that the paper form that you had to send in. Good, which I'm was, not the only old guy was, sitting here. Which was, I didn't do any. Because it wasn't convenient. And with when it went online, um, it made it more convenient. It was, you know, still we had to call in to get copies of our, our exposures. Uh, but just trying to fill that out for every, especially working in South San Francisco, it's a, it's a very big biotech area. There's a lot of, we get a lot of multi-alarm fires in warehouses that we have no idea what's in it. Um, so it was a big deal to, to do the exposures on those 
buildings. It definitely made my case when I went into the QME doctor to have all those exposure reports to bring in and show him proof, basically. And like you were saying, it, even with an attorney, it you do feel completely alone at times, even though people are reaching out. I mean, meal trains and all kinds of stuff, huge amount of support from the department, from my station. It was great. But you still, you're sitting at home and you're, you're basically fighting for your life, not, not really knowing what the next step's going to be because the, the choice of them accepting or not is totally out of your hands. So having the fact that you do have that exposure report to prove that you were exposed. And then that combined with the presumptive presumptive law, uh, I think was, you know, it definitely made, made it more comforting without a doubt. Have you guys have, I mean, you work in different departments, both large departments um, in Northern California and in the Bay. Um, are you finding, are you finding that um, the members of your local and that you have, um, exposure and time with, are they pretty receptive about being proactive on personal exposure reporting? Or do we still have work to do? I, in my department, I think we do still have work to do, but when I was diagnosed, there was a huge shift. Um, you know, we have the plime events, the exhaust removal stuff. Guys are all of a sudden now hooking them up. Um, turnouts in the fire station, guys are no longer putting their turnouts by their dorm rooms. Um, so there was a lot of little things that came out after I was diagnosed. And I think that was one of the things where it's like, oh, if it can happen to him, it can happen to anybody. Uh, so, but are they, are we perfect, you know, in doing the exposure reports? No. Um, so what we've also created is a cancer committee and we started doing, we're putting through a policy about on-scene decon Mm -hmm. So that you're actually deconning yourselves after fires. Um, but again, it, it's a bigger department. The wheels turn slow, so it's still in process, but it's definitely not losing steam. And people are, I think, more aware now. Mike, what about you? How do you think the department's, you know, peers? I know for our department, um, we have about 90% that are active in PER. Um, I know that as a local, we're at about 85%. And local 1230 is a medium to larger size local. Um, so to have those numbers is, is pretty positive. Um, I know organizationally for us, we're in, a, we're in a shift right now where we're starting another swing of, of retirements and new hires. I know as the cultural paradigm shifts, we're going to have a lot more success. I think it's something that's far more well-receptive. Uh, people are okay with hearing it for us that were raised by the, by the generations past where we all had our turnouts by our beds. When we started the station, I work at our dorm was, is right by the app bay and we would have exhaust dust in our app bay and we would be good to go, you know, just clean it off and no big deal. Times are changing yeah. and people are responding well to it. The app based reporting is huge. I mean, at the campfire, I did my report, while we were demobbing. And it was just something that we did. And, and we sat in our engine and knocked it out and we were good to go. It, as, as technology moves forward, we all know sometimes it, it gets in the way. I think this is a pretty good one. How receptive do you, I mean, we're, we're all seeing, you guys are old guys now. 
You know, you're over 40. <laughs> you are. You're, you're getting, what, 20 years or close to it if you don't already have it. And and we're seeing departments change rapidly. Absolutely. Um, our, our youngest and newest members um, being indoctrinated into the PER, and if they're not, what do we, I'm sitting there as a CPF president, what do I, what do we need to do? I think bringing it to the forefront, not being afraid to have this conversation and, you know, not that I don't think anybody in this room is looking for accolades for Mm-mm. being sick. I think it's more, if we can help you not go through what we went through, that's the win. I know for us, just the opportunity to sit down and talk with our new guys um, is huge. Getting the opportunity for us, we send our recruits through Alameda County's Academy. So all of our new folks actually get to sit and hear Alex's story. That's huge. Yeah, so in, in our academy, I actually come in. So I help with a lot of the rescue systems and, and survival and Rick and all that, but I don't say anything. I don't say, I don't tell them my story. I don't tell them my ordeal or anything. And then at the end, we have a, a cancer awareness and personal exposure report, how to basically. So the, the cadre print out all of their live fires that they did, vehicle fires, building fires, all that stuff. And we actually go through together, the, everybody's issued iPads, and we actually go through and fill out one together, and then they can do the rest on their own. So they have a printed list of what they've been exposed to in the academy, and then they, they're made a, very aware during the, during the hour that I have with them of my story. Cancer is a real thing within the fire service. It's not, it's not an if, it's a when. This will probably get a little personal, and if it's if if it is, just say that's out of bounds. You got a cancer diagnosis, and yes. it's a brain cancer diagnosis. What, well, kind of what went through your mind? Because it that kind of goes into the behavioral health piece too. That can mess a guy up or yes. a gal up really bad. Yes. And and kind of what was what was that process like? The way my brain kind of works is if I'm given an objective. I meet the objective and then I'll usually feel effects after. So uh, I didn't really think about it much except, you know, I mean, obviously you're, you're strapped to a radiation table getting your brain radiated. Just you strapped to your head, strapped to a table so you can't move and you go in the machine and it passes over you and whether your eyes are open or closed, you see light. And uh, just, it's very, very strange. So during the treatment, it was just beat it. There was no, there was, I had one focus and that was it. There was no sidelining. But after you kind of, you're like, oh, okay, now I can kind of calm down. What if I wasn't there for my kids? What, you know, what happens if I, you know, die early because of the radiation or because of it comes back, you know, because brain cancer does have a high rate of reoccurrence. I was getting woken up at night, you know, that, so the typical, you know, stress response. So some of the some of the same PTSI absolutely things were happening as, absolutely. as you were going through that. Yeah. And then now now it's definitely I'm better. Mike, how about you? I know that um, kind of the same question. What goes through your head when you're sitting there going, Man, my mortality's right in front of me. Am I gonna survive this? Getting a lumbar puncture is not fun. Getting a needle put into your spine was was very uncomfortable. And then getting told 72 hours, that's where you're at. That is a powerful statement to hear, um, especially as a young guy. I, 
I was a single dad at the time. I had a seven-year-old who was on a camping trip with my parents, and I had no way to get a hold of them. Sitting in the hospital in isolation, terrible. You have nothing but time to just let your brain go off and just start wreaking havoc. And you can come up with all kinds of interesting stories. The personal exposure um, uh, report, reporting app has a behavioral health component to it. Hit on that for just a minute on how important that is, because this stuff builds up and hit, hit on the behavioral health piece. I think the behavioral health piece in terms of reporting, uh, like I touched on earlier, it's, it empowers the person. Um, one of the reasons PER is good is you have control of it. You get to report and you get to say what is reported. And it's yours. It's mine. And what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. And some of it, especially as it relates to behavioral health, is, is my perception of my exposure. Getting, getting the opportunity to say, hey, this caused me this. Whether it's sitting in Santa Rosa or in Chico and experiencing those fires or the car accident, the pediatric arrest, you, you don't know what's going to connect. But as, as this topic is becoming more forefront and the acceptance or the allowance to sit and say, this caused me a problem, being able to report that, being able to just jot it down and being able to know that should something go down, I'm going to have support is huge. And Alex, how important is it to you to know that you have that information and it's your information and it's private and you have the ability to put it on the table at the appropriate time? You have that security that no one else is entitled to it. You have control over it. How important is that? Uh, to me, I, I think it's so important to be able to document for yourself and bring it out when you need it. I actually did that, it worked. Um, so for me, I think that was the hugest part is, you know, basically going to that QME doctor and, and putting out the stack of exposure reports is just saying, you know, um, here it is. It, this is proof that I actually was exposed. And I, I think you hit on it earlier too, is just saying, you know, we all see one event and you could take it different than I take it. It could affect me more. So who's to say that you may not be affected by it, but I am. So I can fill out my own exposure report and there's nothing that you can, Absolutely. nobody can take that away from you because it's yours and you only have access to it and you can bring it out when you need it. If you do face some sort of diagnosis like I did, uh, and put it on the table for the doctor and say, this is proof. This, I actually have been through this. Here's my proof, you know, with incident numbers, times, people you're with, all that kind of stuff. And, and now that you can print it out yourself and take it in, it makes it that much more convenient. With so much of this world being data-driven, it allows for uh, almost an emotionless opportunity to just provide data and facts. And have it for when the world seems like it's crashing down around you to be able to print it up. Here's my story. Absolutely. I could go on, you guys, I could talk about this and go down other roads with you guys for hours. First, I want to thank you 
um, both Alex and Mike for being here, sharing your story. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to, if you have a piece of advice for your brothers and sisters, not just across the state of California and members of the CPF, but anybody that may be listening to this topic or discussion, what piece of advice with you would you give them? Mike, I'll start with you. I would say to start, don't be afraid to have the conversation. Understand that other people may have experienced something. The opportunity to learn from people's experiences is huge. If we cannot repeat something that's gone on in the past, we can continue to move forward and we can learn from people's experiences. The opportunity to not have to be alone, the opportunity to know that the information is there and there are presumptive laws that are in place that are there just to help us is huge. Alex? People have been through this before you. Uh, I was actually hooked up with a guy from Southern California that went through actually a, a more significant tumor than I had and actually had symptoms. But he was a, considered a long-term survivor of uh, glioblastoma. So he kind of walked me through the symptoms he felt, the surgery he went through. So there's always somebody that has been through it before. And I think the biggest thing for us is education. You know, with uh, we went to a cancer symposium in Phoenix. Uh, there's, there's a lot of resources on the web, um, it, whether it be cancer, whether it be, you know, a medical illness, something that you can track. Uh, the state of California luckily has very good presumption laws, but I know a guy from Iowa that had brain cancer that it was not presumptive. And his department treated it as presumptive, but he did not get any of the benefits from his organization. So I think carrying that torch with those states that are behind where California is, I think is imperative. Uh, and I also think that just knowing that somebody has been through this before and there's resources on the web through the IFF, CPF websites that you can actually go and, and connect with people that have been through this, been down the road, and get the legislation, get the proof, so you, you know, you're not as in the dark as you're going to be, or as you could be. Mike and Alex, I want to thank you for joining me today and sharing your stories. Also for reminding us why it makes a difference for every firefighter to keep track of their exposures. The CPF personal exposure reporting system is your best protection. It's like your digital PPE. It's easy to use, it's secure, and it costs next to nothing. $10 a year if you're a CPF firefighter. In fact, dozens of apartment departments and locals actually pay the cost, meaning that you'll get it for nothing. So sign up now at peronline.org. I'm Brian Rice. Please join us next month for another episode of the CPF Firewire. You can find CPF Firewire at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you find podcasts. Be sure to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. You can also find CPF Firewire at the CPF website, www.cpf.org, and on the CPF YouTube page. We're always interested in getting your feedback, comments, and criticism. Tell us what you'd like to hear about. Drop us a line, info at cpf.org. 
CPF Firewire is a production of California Professional Firefighters. Our producer is Carol Wills. Our engineer is Matt McDermott. Please join us next month for another edition of CPF Firewire.